Hello and welcome to Not If I Reboot You First, the podcast where we take our favorite part of history and reboot it before Hollywood has a chance to. It's a little bit like brainstorming. Well, I guess if we're talking about historical things, it's real person fiction. Here's here's Lindsay, Queen of the RPF. I didn't even mean to become Queen of the RPF. God damn. <laughs> At least I'm not talking about actual, like, living, breathing hockey players. That's true. And you know, so hockey players, that's AO3's business. On Tumblr, it's Formula One. Huh. Yeah. Oh, Formula One fandom is thriving on Tumblr. I did not know that. <laughs> but okay. And we might pronounce they, them, Lindsay's or she, her, Lindsay. Yeah, I'm she, her. Um, yeah, I didn't know that Days of Thunder was like a favorite movie uh, on Tumblr, but okay. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, so today we are adapting real life historical events via a book that I really like called The Storm Before the Storm, The Beginning of the End of the Roman Empire by one Mike Duncan. He is one of the podcasting godfathers, I guess, because uh, he's famous for the History of Rome podcast and now the Revolutions podcast. Um, and the History of Rome started like back in the early days of podcasting, which is why I'm like, he's one of the godfathers. And now Revolutions, uh, he's, doing, he's still wrapping up the Russian Revolution. It's over 100 episodes <laughs> for just the Russian Revolution. There's a lot of moving parts. That's true. That is very fair. But follow the Roman Empire. Nothing to do with current events, I'm sure. No, and I'm talking about the fall of the Roman Republic. Well, the events before the fall of the Roman Republic. Okay. Way before that set the stage for dudes like Julius Caesar. Okay. Yeah. He does make an appearance as probably a shitty 19-year-old. Nice. <laughs> Played by Timothy Chalamet. Yeah, he would. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on, is Dune not just a riff on the fall of the Republic? Uh, Dune is a riff on a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> Frank Herbert had opinions. What if, what if the fall of Rome, but there were big worms? Well, maybe one of these days, because given how long Denis Villeneuve takes to make a movie, we might have to do our own, hey, let's adapt some Dune. <laughs> I saw a Tumblr post that was demanding that there be a Doom a Dune theme park now that it's mainstream. <laughs> the Reverend Mother's extreme Gomjabar experience. <laughs> Alright, time to hook yourself onto a sandworm. <laughs> oh Christ, I haven't even gone to the whole sandworm part. Like the actual riding the sandworms part. Yeah, they're just worms. We have we have not the worms are not plot relevant yet. Yeah. <laughs> One day they'll well, get their Shia day in the sun. Is, yeah. Anyway, we have gone way over to Dune. Anyway, into the far <laughs> grim dark future of the 41st millennium. Because that franchise is also based off of Dune. Or took inspiration from Dune. Really? Yeah. Huh. The God Emperor of Mankind is definitely Warhammer's version of Leto the Second. Anyway, let's talk uh, about the Gracky okay, Brothers. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yep. <laughs> let's talk about the Gracky Brothers. So, I should set the stage for where Rome is at in the 
one thirties. Um, this is after the third Punic War. So the first Punic War was Rome fights Carthage because mercenaries did a stupid in Sicily. It's rather anticlimactic, but it leads to uh, Carthage having to pay some major reparations to Rome. Okay. And one Hannibal Barca's dad gets big mad about it and raises his sons to take vengeance upon Rome. And thus we get the Second Punic Wars, which was the one that almost brought Rome to her knees. Yeah, this, that's also the war where Hannibal crossed the Alps with the elephants. Uh. Um, Third Punic War was, again, Carthage has to pay some massive reparations. They managed to do that, and you get the shithead politician named Cato the Elder, who is who will end all of his speeches, and Carthage must be destroyed. And he even, like, enticed people with, like, oh, look at these figs that came from Carthage. They're doing so well. He was one of those guys who would, like, gripe about the loss of traditional Roman values in favor of Greek ones, but, like, lived a life of luxury. Hmm. One of those shits. Anyway, Carthage was destroyed. So we're opening up with that. Carthage has been destroyed. They salted the earth. They moved the populate. The population that they did not kill or enslave, they moved 20 miles inland because Rome was that mad. And we have the commander of the Roman forces, one Scipio Aemilianus, who was the nephew of Scipio Africanus, who was the dude who managed to finally defeat Hannibal. Also, just a word of warning, a lot of people have the same names. It's kind of insane. There's a lot of guys named Gaius. Um, so, Scipio Emilianus is allegedly weeping at the sight of Carthage burning, both because of, you know, all the humanity, but also he's like, something like this is gonna happen to Rome someday. We're fucked. We're fucked. We're so fucked. Which, guess what? He was kind of right in the long term. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And nearby him is his young brother-in-law, Tiberius Sempronius Gracchus. Also, his dad was named Tiberius Sempronius Gracchus. Anyway, he's the elder of the two Gracchi brothers. Uh, these two brothers, Tiberius and his younger brother, one of the first of many Gaiuses, um, are going to be big-time attempted reformers in Rome. They've been compared by historian, modern historians to, like, the Kennedys and the Roosevelts. I would say that they're more like the Roosevelts, but they do have Kennedy-esque endings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, long before bullets are invented, though. But anyway. Um, so the older of the two, Tiberius, uh, what's really affecting him is, like, aside from like the good education that he got thanks to his mother, who is, uh, I would say is a lot more ambitious than the Roman histories like to say, because women get written out of history all the time. Um, like, yes, he is an ambitious young Roman man, as you should be. You're told to be like that. You're taken into a room with all the death masks of your ancestors and told you got to be better than them. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also, like, what happens with Rome after the fall of Carthage is Rome is suddenly the superpower of the Mediterranean. Like, maybe the Parthians could challenge them, but the Parthians are not really doing stuff. They don't have control over, like, the eastern Mediterranean at all. The Egyptians are 
hold, the Ptolemies are holding on by a fucking thread, and then there's all of these little Greek kingdoms, and they're all holding on by a thread. And then there's Rome, and she is flushed with cash. And, like, because of all these wars that have happened for almost 50 years by this point, a lot of Roman men are dead. So a lot of the small farms that Rome has built her entire, like, economy and culture around have fallen on hard times. And when you have a lot of, and when you have a ruling class that has a lot of cash on them, they want to invest in property. So they're okay. buying up, yeah, they're buying up all of these small farms and turning them into these massive estates. And because there's now all of a sudden a lot of slaves that can be used. Now, it should be noted that Roman slavery is very different from like chattel, chattel slavery. Slave. Yeah. But you didn't want to be a slave on one of these plantations or in the mines. You wanted yeah. to be the Greek philosopher who sold himself into slavery because you got a sweet job. <laughs> uh, basically, all of these farmers are being pushed out. The ones who have survived on top of that, like these veteran farmers. And the thing about Rome is that at this time is that there were property requirements in order to serve in the army. You had to have enough money to equip yourself. Um, so that you could go and fight. They're losing that category of person who can at least equip themselves with like the tunic, the armor, and the weapons, basically. Okay. Yeah. This isn't great because all of a sudden um, they're going to be dealing with like the Cambri and they have to like deal with revolts in Hispania, Spain all the time and they're just spreading out of manpower so what the older brother Tiberius wants to do <coughs> is pass a law called the Lex Agraria the Lex Agraria would basically take control of what's called the um, basically the public lands like there were when Rome would conquer an area they would take like a third would go to a certain group of people a third would go to a certain other group of people, and then third would go into public holding by the state. And by the state, I mean, like, the senatorial class. The, se the senators in Rome are the ones who are really getting in on this whole, like, taking over, uh, like, buying up all this land game. So what Tiberius wants to do when he becomes tribune of the plebs, which for him is a bit of an odd turn in the Mons Maiorum. The plebeians? Like yeah, so the Tribune of the Plebes, that was created to as like a voice for like the regular people of Rome. Um and someone of Tiberius's position normally didn't go to that didn't want to become the Tribune of the Plebes, wanted to wanted to be like the Tribune of something else and then get on with their career, or they wouldn't stick around in that role very right. long. Um Tiberius is going to start breaking the Mons Maiorum. This is like how Ro Rome's unwritten constitution and like how things in government are done. And this includes like how you ranked up in Roman government over time because it was a set way of doing things. This is where that system breaks down. So he wants to pass the Lex Agraria which would transfer power of the public lands from the Senate over to the people. Um, and kick the senator, senatorial class out of it, 
out of these public lands and basically redistribute it mostly to veterans, but just in general making these lands available for people to farm and, you know, rebuild this small farm uh, economy. Even though Rome is now the master of the Western, definitely of the Western Mediterranean, the economy is going to be different. So he's trying his damnedest and he's trying to be a good Roman about it about it. He's trying to do, he's breaking the rules, but trying to at least appear like he's not really breaking the rules, like trying to evoke earlier times and all that sort of stuff. And he's trying to play by as many rules as possible to get this done. So like, um, I, I'm envisioning this as being like a four to five season, say 10 episode per season, hour long, Either prestige TV or hell, I would do animated, like nice animation. <laughs> <laughs> Fall of Rome, so, the anime. Well, I was just thinking recently because I've also seen the new trailer for the new Castlevania uh, series. Like, there's not a lot of like when you think of adult animation, it's usually like comedies and. Uh, Seth MacFarlane's The Fall of Rome. Seth MacFarlane is not touching this shit, okay? <laughs> I'm just saying, like, Percy's TV doesn't have to be live action. Yeah. Yeah. So, and the thing about historical dramas is that they get fucking expensive to make. Okay, so I was gonna say a joke about the Muppets Fall of Rome. Actually... <laughs> but I if mean... you got, like, the Creature Shop, which does more realistic stuff, you could actually maybe do something interesting with puppets. That's true. And then maybe get away with more violence because it's puppets. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I still love Blue's idea of, like, gladiator, <laughs> but it's Muppets. <laughs> <laughs> the only human in that one is Joaquin Phoenix as Commodus. <laughs> No, because then he has to have, like, a really weird incestuous sex scene with either Miss Piggy or Janice. Oh, God, yeah. I guess it's Russell Crowe, then. <laughs> <laughs> Though I find it more hilarious if if Maximus was played by Kermit. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so, like, when it comes to how Tiberius does his speeches, he does it in this very... Here's something that most people probably didn't know because nobody was taught this. And when you're doing the Rome section in his in middle school history, you're only going to be on it for like three weeks. So, of course, you're not going to talk about this. But like for a very long time, Rome's style of speech making was very, very stiff. You stood in one place, very still. You let your words do all the work for you but you also have your face turned towards the Senate as a mark of respect and as a way to sort of like, quote-unquote, address the Senate from the forum. So that's what Tiberius is doing. That's what he is trying to get. Uh, he actually gets a lot of support in this. What he is doing and uh, the allies that he is gathering, what they are very much in agreement of like, yeah, there's a lot of concentration of wealth and land in these rich fucks, maybe we should, you know, distribute all of this to other people before shit gets real bad. Because 
also you have to remember that like Tiberius is from the ruling class like I think part of it is he is motivated by like a genuine sense of oh what's happening to Rome is really bad this is not going to end well for anybody but also I can use this to catapult my career to the consul okay because his dad was also a consul ah there it is yeah got it that's the thing about Roman politics and just Roman if you were a freeborn Roman man is you are told you got to do better than your ancestors but also you might as well use those ancestors to get ahead to begin with yeah much yeah. like the CBC you got to marry yeah. into it yep but unlike the CBC nobody is lazy here <laughs> <laughs> nobody is resting on their fucking laurels so, anyway, the problem, the big problem that our young, um, that the eldest Gracchi brother right now is dealing with is the faction that is led by his in-laws. <laughs> They're also from the Scipio family, what, who are his cousins. Yeah, the cousin marriage, it's whatever. So, he and his cousin, who's also his brother-in-law, Scipio Emilianus, do not get along. Emilianus is fairly conservative, and he's like, but the the rights and traditions of the senatorial class, and uh, poor Tiberius is like, oh my god, you fucking idiot. Also, uh, the relationship between Emilianus and his wife, uh, Sempronia, who is Tiberius and Gaius' sister, yeah, it's not great. They fucking hate each other. <laughs> And Sempronia, I'm pretty sure, is going to be actively working against her her husband. Because I want, in the first two seasons, uh, Cornelia, uh, the mother of these kids, of these young people, and Sempronia to have bigger roles. Because, as I said, and as I basically muttered earlier, women are frequently written out of Roman history. So, oh god, I haven't even looked at my notes. Um, anyway... The big culmination point for Tiberius, like the climax where like he is on top of the world is when he gives a speech. I don't think all of it survived, but there's a really, really great quote um, that I think will resonate with today. It goes, the wild animals of Italy have their dens. Each of them has a place of rest and refuge, but those who fight and die for Italy have nothing. Nothing except the air and the light. Houseless and homeless, they roam the land with their children and wives. They fight and die to protect the rich and luxurious lifestyle enjoyed by others. These so-called masters of the world have not one clod of earth that they can call their own. So I think that should be the big climax of season. Yeah, that makes sense. And then he gets fucking stabbed. Yeah, oh, oh, great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he does... He gives that speech, it's really powerful, it moves the people, and then there's opposition from his in-laws, and they find a guy called Marcus Octavius, who will also be a relative of one Octavius, later known as Octavian, finally known as Caesar Augustus. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, he's like a distant cousin. Um, so, he runs for consul, and Basically, he's the dude who, um, and he's also going to be, like, the antagonist for Gaius in season two, where he is constantly outflanking, basically, 
the senatorial class who become known as the Optimames. Um, I'll explain that in a little bit. Um, he, along with uh, Publius Cornelius Scipio Nausicaa, who is Pontifex Maximus, the chief priest of Rome, uh, they devise a strategy where they're going to start out flanking of flanking the Gracchi brothers with like saying, well, we should do more of X or we should expand citizenship to the Italians. And like the Gracchi are also, you know, for that sort of thing, but like different ways of doing it. And also uh, Tiberius gets hit with a bit of an accusation of being corrupt because there's the whole, so there's a whole thing about the bequest of Attalus III of Pergamon. He was the last king of Pergamon, which is a, a state in what is now Turkey. If you've heard of Pergamon before, it's probably because of the altar of Pergamon, which is basically an altar to a temple that now sits in a museum in Berlin. It's actually pretty cool. But also, you know, let's try to keep, you know, very important historical artifacts in the places that they were found, please. Basically, Adalus, um, or Adalus, I've heard it pronounced a couple different ways, um, he left basically a shit ton of land to Rome, believing that if he did not, then the Romans would take, would take the kingdom anyway, and this way he could avoid bloodshed. Yeah, so basically, Adalus didn't have any direct heirs, and he left his kingdoms to Rome to basically be like, hey, this is yours now. Once I'm I'm dead. So the thing is that bequest got contested by Adalus's brother, as well as the son of Eumenes II, uh, who was an earlier king who led a popular uprising with the help of the Roman philosopher Blosius. Um, and basically Pergamon was divided among the Romans and also the two kingdoms of Pontus and Cappadocia, which is going to bite Rome in the ass when Mithridates becomes a problem. Yeah, uh, Mithrid, not the one who would like eat little bits of poison to develop an immunity to it. <laughs> this is like his dad. The later Mithridates was a problem of Pompey. Anyway. There's a lot of controversy about this bequest because it looks, because the way it's being handled, it looks like Tiberius might be, you know, skimming a bit off the top of the treasury, which never looks good. So anyway, this all results in a riot in the forum led by uh, Publius Cornelius Scipio Nausicaa that leads to the death of 300 people, including Tiberius, and all the bodies are shoved into the Tiber River. So yeah, Great. Dan ending for yeah, it's like season one of Game of Thrones. Yeah. Oh, you think that this guy is gonna you know do all the good stuff and you know be the long no no we're gonna be shanking a lot of people here. So, guys is big mad about this. Um, he's been kind of like the supporting character for season one. He's now the main character of season two. He gets elected tribute of the plebes. He also has a fairly good resume. Like he has a good education. Thanks to his mom, Cornelia. Um, also like Cornelia is probably helping guide him and making decisions because I want her to be a more important character. Um, he, so he is like a couple, 
I'm not too sure how much of an age gap it is between Tiberius and Gaius, but I think it was enough that, like, Gaius had gone past the military service requirement by the time Tiberius was killed. Because, like, he seems to have just gone back to Rome from his time in Hispania dealing with um, the Celtiberians' rebellions against Roman against the Roman occupation. And it was there that he saw... Basically, Hispania was what would became what Napoleon would term the Spanish ulcer. <laughs> it was like, uh, yeah, it was a lot of guerrilla fighting. It was a, you know, long, hard slog. The legions became very demoralized. Like, they didn't have enough food. They were often, they're frequently being attacked. Um, the climate wasn't agreeing with them. The, these guys were dropping like flies. And then they're officers were fucking awful to them and like when they weren't beating the fuck out of their soldiers these officers were turning around and like massacring Celtiberians and imposing all of these extremely cruel extremely greedy reparations and taking land for themselves so you couple this with oh my brother the reformer also got shanked for deigning to suggest that hey maybe the public lands should be held in the hands of the public so, um yeah i'm coming after you fucks <laughs> so he gets elected tribute of the plebs and his campaign for uh reform is a lot more aggressive also he starts changing the style of um of speeches so where his brother had been very traditional and very, like, stiff, just letting his words do all the work, Gaius is a lot more theatrical. He is, like, walking all over the stage. He's making gesticulations. He's pointing at people. He's doing... He's working the crowd. So I think this actor needs... Whichever actor, live action or voice, needs to be fucking charismatic as fuck. Also have a lot of body presence. So, some of the stuff he's doing is getting the Lexagraria passed and expanding the reforms by establishing new colonies at Scholasium and Tarantum, which I think are still on the Italian peninsula. Um, he wants to institute the Lex Militaris, which would provide clothing for the legions and establish new terms of service, possibly providing a pension program. Um, and also continuing Tiberius's plans of expanding enfranchisement to include non-Roman Italians. This was a major sticking point in Italy at the time. And the problem he runs into is, like, yeah, Nausicaa got run out of town for daring to kill a tribune because um, you're not allowed to do that. Murder <laughs> in general is bad, but also murdering a tribune is one of those Jupiter himself was gonna strike you down bad. But there's also his cousin slash brother-in-law, Scipio Emilianus, who really goes like full Coriolanus on everybody. Like he he runs for consul and he's deeply unpopular and he does a whole common cry of curse speech where he's like, I'm not the wrong person. It's the weak and licentious public who are wrong. <laughs> and then he dies very suddenly. Huh. Um, 
There have been rumors that it might not have been natural causes, but nobody liked Scipio Emilianus, so nobody really investigates. <laughs> <laughs> um, unfortunately, unfortunately, there is a conspiracy, and a lot of the people who had been supporters of Scipio Emilianus and Scipio Nausicaa, and of course Octavius, who is doing his whole outflanking thing. Like at first, guys, his career is going great. He's getting all the shit done. People love him. He's really charismatic. But then in the Senate, Marcus Octavius is outflanking him with being like, not only should we do this, but we should also expand it even further. And yeah, just constantly outflanking, outflanking him and all sorts of things and is forcing Gaius into the position of having to defend traditional Roman ways of doing things when he doesn't want to. So... Eventually, this leads to yet another riot, where yet another couple hundred people die, and everybody gets dropped into the Tiber. That happens often, it feels, sounds like. Yeah, this is just a Roman thing. Like, this continues probably to this day. Uh, yeah, it's their their version of the Hudson. Yeah. I mean, there was that one pope who dug up the other pope and then accused him of heresy, and yeah, also threw him into the Tiber, but then that pope went after he died, was also accused of heresy and thrown into the Tiber. Yeah. Another Pope's son wound up assassinated and his body was found floating in the Tiber. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is just a thing. So, in the background, you have two guys who are going to be very important. Who are going to be our main characters for season three and season yeah, I'm probably going to have to do five seasons. So, it's the rise of Gaius Marius and Sulla. So, Gaius Marius is what's called a Nova Homan. Homanus. Uh, a new man. Uh, he is like one or two generations out of a town that used to be uh, a non-Roman Italian town. That I think in his grandfather's generation, they had been enfranchised as Romans. So he had also served under Scipio Emilianus for the expedition to Numantia over in uh, modern-day Spain. And he also cut his teeth fighting the Kimbric and uh, and the Jugurthine Wars. So the Kimbric were... (sighs) Okay, the thing about Roman ethnography is that they were kind of threw names around all the time. (laughs) <laughs> so the Kimbrick were called a Germanic tribe, but we don't actually know where they came from. Probably from somewhere around the Baltic. But again, we don't know. And they never really, like, distinguished between confederations and actual tribes and actual ethnic group, ethno-linguistic groups. They kind of threw shit together constantly. So the Cambri were this group of people from somewhere in northeastern Europe that were kind of going all over the the place because they got chased out of their homelands and were just looking for somewhere new to settle. And, like, they didn't even want to deal with the Romans. They kind of got a forewarning that, hey, yeah, the Romans are kind of, you know, taking over the place. They're very martial. Give them a wide berth. Don't give them a reason to fight you. And they're like, they send em- emissaries to Rome where it's like, hey, all we want is to find a new place to settle. We're not going to deal... We we will leave you alone, okay? Just let us settle somewhere. 
Of course, the Romans get paranoid about it. So anyway, there's fights at the Cambri. The Jugurthine Wars are all down in Numidia, which is now modern-day Algeria. And that has to do with the succession crisis. And the rise of one Jugurtha. Oh, Jugurtha. He's one of those guys who, like, chronic backstabbing disorder, like, kills his own brothers sort of dude. Ah. Yeah. All because there can only be one king here. (laughs) Uh, So anyway, Marius is a new man. He's cutting his teeth. And the thing with being a novice homo is that the expectation is that you're never going to rise to consul. The expectation is that you're never even going to rise to a senate, to the senate seat or like anything higher than probably a tribune. And like he's Marius is a very ambitious man. He wants to get to the top. And uh he he uh in Numidia is serving under Quintus Cecilius Metellus Numidicus. He doesn't have the Numidicus uh cognomen at the time. But yeah, uh, let's call him Metellus. Um, and the thing is, like, Marius is getting to the age where it's like, hey, I want to run for these, you know, public office positions and, you know, eventually become, you know, if I make a bid for consul, would you support me? And uh, Metellus basically tells him, oh, yeah, I will. Um, ideally, I'd want you to be serving with my son in 20 years. <laughs> and... Marius is like in his 30s by that point so he's looking at this snot-nosed kid and it's like you're never gonna let me be fucking consul fuck you (laughs) so yeah and also like Metellus is not that good of a military leader it's really Marius who's running the show um so we lead this leads us to a new rule being broke uh, due to lack of fit men who can meet the property requirements, Marius starts asking for an exemption to allow any man to volunteer. Um, because eventually, like, Marius is gonna, you know, basically start a whisper campaign to get his bot, to get his patron fired, uh, sent back to Rome. He'll take over, deal with Jugurtha, then go to basically what's now France to deal with the Cimbri. And, um, he's just like, oh, we need more, we we just need more people. So he's going to pass what's called the Marian reforms. He, uh, Marius does get credited with a lot of, like, reforms as to how, like, the Roman forces, like, form up, like, how they march and how they fight. That's probably stuff that other people did and just got lumped into his reforms. Like, what he's really important... What he really does is just, like, saying, we need to do away with the property requirements because otherwise we're not going to have an army. Because, like, even with the Lux Agraria, so much land has and money has been concentrated into so few hands that there's not enough men who qualify to serve in the army. So he expands, he expands that, he includes Italians, he includes mercenaries. Um... And this allows Marius to fight uh, first in uh, Jugurtha and his people basically running a guerrilla campaign in Algeria. And then, like, once Jugurtha is dealt with, Marius can go up to France, 
to deal with the Cimbri. Uh, we're also getting to another big rule being broken, which is uh, how many consulships and when you can have them. So Scipio Emilianus has already served not one but two consulships, which was not done until Scipio Emilianus was able to do that. He also like served one when he was technically too young to serve. You had to be a minimum of like 35 and he was no, you had to be a minimum of 45. And he was not 45. And the second time was, you know, the second consulship. You're only supposed to serve one. So Marius is going to run for consul. And he's gonna, going to wind up being consul seven times. So, yeah, just like all of these rules being... So, yeah, season three is mostly the Marius stuff where he is trying to get Rome stabilized. And fighting the Cambri because the Cambri do become a threat. Um, and in the background, you have one Lucius Cornelius Sulla Felix, who is also called Sulla. He is from the aristocratic cl- class. Like, he comes from a very old, very prestigious family that has fallen on hard times. Like, uh, as a young man, he was living as a playboy. Also, like, I, I'm pretty sure uh, Sulla was bisexual because he had a lifelong male partner. Um, but he also, like, went through women. Like, one runs through... Uh, tissue paper (laughs) and um the thing is like he was living this high life he was living among artists and actors who are the lowest of the low in roman society and then his dad dies and he discovers just like how in the red they were (laughs) it's like "Uh uh-oh i gotta make money fast um so conveniently one of his mistresses dies he had a taste for older widows. And uh, one of his sugar mamas left him all of her land and all of her money. And his stepmom also dies soon afterwards and also leaves all of her land and all of her property to Sulla. So he's like, oh, sweet, I can finally, you know, have a public life. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, he rules in like a rich kid. But like, again, unlike other rich kids who are like, oh, be, my daddy bought me this position or whatever or oh my money does like all of this I can just pay people to do whatever Never. Um, Sulla actually proves frustratingly good at his job as a military leader and basically he's the one who actually gets Jugurtha captured um, basically he manages to get Bacchus I, King of Mauritania to who had been an ally of uh, Jugurtha, but because Jugurtha is a backstabbing hoe, um, <laughs> Bocas is like, I can't trust you. I'm gonna go to the Romans. Like, yeah, they're backstabbers too, but like, I don't know. I I feel like my butts are safer with them. Um, so he traps Jugurtha, delivers him to the Romans in chains. Uh, Metellus gets his cognum in Numidicus. Everybody gets a fucking triumph. All is great. Everybody is staring at each other like, I am going to stab you in the back and stab you in the back and stab you in the back because fuck everybody here. So season four is going to be the wrap up of the Cambrian War. Marius' consul goes up to France to deal with the Cambri because the Romans have lost several big battles that have resulted in like the loss of entire legions and legions surrendering and having to go under the yoke, which is like this whole humility 
humiliating ceremony to acknowledge that, yes, we have lost this battle. So under the new military reforms, Marius is able to defeat and enslave the Cambri, and the experience gain will be useful for the social war. Um, and because of this, Marius becomes known as the third founder of Rome. Huh. The first one is uh, Romulus of Romulus and Remus fame. Uh, the second one is, I forget his name, but back in the 380s, there had been an invasion of Gauls that had almost destroyed Rome. Like, just flattened her. And he managed to pull Rome back up from the ashes. So he gets the term the second founder. Marius, because of like these massive reforms that he's done and these massive victories that he's managed to pull off, especially against the Cambri, gets called the third founder. So this is where the debate the debate over Italian citizenship just erupts into a full-blown war. And and a relative of Julius Caesar's is going to try to get the Lex Julia passed, which would grant citizenship to all Italians not yet under arms. All the while, there's all this politi- politicking between the Optimates and the Populares. So the Optimates, I'll explain it here are aristocrats who want to defend their wealth and privileges, were fiscally conservative, and emphasize authority, small government, and authority of the Senate. The populares are populists, they believe in land and wealth redistribution, were highly critical of the Senate, and tended to attack to attract the novus homo, the new men. Um now they weren't quite political parties in how like we would understand them today, but basically they represented like two kind of different political streams, if you will. A bit of a left-right divide, but like a lot more nebulous. A bit more crossover. Um, this is also where the problem of the Mithridatic War happens because, oh Christ, we got another succession crisis over in Asia. <sighs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, the, the reason this is the season where Marius and Sulla really go after each other and where it's a lot of, like, at one point, Marius is going to be on the run. Like, this dude is in his, like, 50s, 60s, and he's having to hide out in a swamp, sort of, on the run. But, like, uh, then next, Sulla is having to deal with the Methodatic War. Uh, Sulla's on top, then a bunch of people get murdered, and... And he breaks a shit ton of rules and loses Rome. He gets chased out of Rome. Uh, so Marius comes back and gets his revenge with his seventh and final consulship. Also, this is where um, there's this alliance formed with Lucius Cornelia, Cornelius Cinna, uh, who becomes consul him- himself because Rome always has two consuls. So he is from the same family as Sulla, from a different branch, but nobody's entirely sure, like, how they're related. His origins are pretty obscure. But the big thing, aside from him being a major, from Senna being a major supporter of Marius, is that his daughter, Cornelia, marries uh, Julius Caesar. Uh, She's the Either the first or second wife, she's the only one who gives him a legitimate child, uh, Julia. And she's Julius Caesar's favorite wife that he ever had. Um, Good for her. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you're the one he genuinely loved. 
<laughs> Unfortunately, she dies in childbirth. Ah. Yeah, that's why all the other wives don't ever measure up. <sighs> You'll never be like Carnelia. <laughs> so, yeah, it goes like Mariasella, Mariasella. Marius finally gets the seventh final consulship, and then, like, there's a bunch of, um, he kind of purges the city a bit. He does a purge. Uh, one of his other allies, Strab- uh, Strabo, suddenly dies. A lot of guys die. And then just as Marius was about to go to Asia Minor to, quote-unquote, help out Sulla fight Mithridates uh, of Pontus, uh, he Marius suddenly dies. Um, he had, I want to say, yeah, he had a surgery for varicose veins, and I, it seemed to have gone well, but then he suddenly got what people think is pleurisy, which is like a lung infection, and yeah, just drops dead before he can upstage Scylla once more. Huh. Yeah. So this causes a lot of problems for Rome, because it's now the Scylla show, baby. We're in season five. We're in the final stretch. Okay. Um, you have ten minutes. <laughs> Okay, so <laughs> Sulla and Cinna, they're going to be fucking hating each other. This is the main rivalry. Uh, this is the one where Sulla just goes off the deep end. Uh, he sacks Athens. He fights the battles of Chironea and Orchomenus. Uh, Sulla has his victory and settlement of Greece and Asia Minor. They finally fully come under Roman control. Um, and then we get the Civil War. Which, like, you have, the popularities actually have what on paper seems like a really, really strong alignment. Because the popularities were, again, big supporters of enfranchising all uh, non-Romani Italians. So they got everybody else in Italy on board. They got all these guys with all of these big legions. Because now, like, individual legions are loyal to their commanders, basically. Uh, because you can now raise legions with money with your own private money. Um, and yeah, it just, they have the entire West to themselves and Sulla is stuck in the East and they think, Oh, we can easily crush Sulla. No, that's not what happens. Sulla lands in Brindisia, which is now modern day Brindisi. And he promises the Italians there that he's going to honor the enfranchisement. It, uh, like he's going to promise to honor that, make sure that they are full Roman citizens by when he gets to Rome. So they join up with him and let him through. And then we see two people who are going to be very important in HBO's Rome, uh, Pompey and Crassus. There was another dude named Crassus in the series. Um, that's not that Crassus. This this crack this Crassus, this young Crassus, he's the one who winds up getting the uh, molten gold poured down his throat in Syria. Ah. When he tried to take on the Parthians. And yeah, just like all these other people, because Sulla promises to on like basically the Italian citizenship question has been decided. And even though Sulla is very much an optimate who doesn't want the Italians to have Roman citizenship, he's like I can't fight this, so I'm going to promise that. And just the support for the populares dissipates, and he's able to take out all of... Um, he's able to fight these battles and finally like take Rome. It takes a while. It takes about two years. But eventually, this leads to the death, uh, 
the deaths of uh Lindsay's audio cut out here and I couldn't really reconstruct it, so this is me letting you all know that it led to the deaths of Carbo, Gaius Norbanus, Gaius Marius the Younger, Gaius Carinus, Gaius Martius Sensornius, Lucius Genius Brutus Demosippus, and Pontius Telsnes. Those are a lot of Gaiuses and a lot of dumb Roman names. Anyways. And like some of these guys die in battle, some of these guys are executed in what becomes uh, Sulla's prescriptions. So the first prescription is just like eight guys, and then it expands to 80, and then it expands to 300, and then 500. And then people are just like, because like nobody knows what people look like, people are just like saying, oh yeah, my neighbor did whatever, or like, hey, I will bring the head of some random dude and claim like oh yeah this this dude was totally that dude on that on that list of people that Sulla wants dead because Sulla is now not just consul he's dictator oh great and this is yeah this is one of the last so the term dictator in Roman law had been like in an emergency situation we need a guy who is going to be in charge of everything for a maximum of six months the most famous of them was uh, Cincinnatus, whom Cincinnati is named after. And like, there was this whole idea that you are a dictator for this amount of time to deal with this particular situation, and then you leave. Sulla becomes dictator for life. Yeah, because well, because it's it's because he didn't die a hero, so he lived long enough to see himself become the villain. Now, one good thing is that he doesn't live long. (laughs) (laughs) He suddenly got something, and it didn't sound pretty. (laughs) Nasty case of the Mondays. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, he doesn't live long enough to enjoy being dictator for life. But, yeah, he basically, like, does these massive purges. Um, A young guy's Julius Caesar, because he is, like... Descended from the dude who did the Lex Julia, his family has, like, one of the oldest, most aristocratic families in Rome, but they had also fallen on hard times, so they sided with the Popularis, uh, which Julius is going to use when he becomes dictator of Rome. He's also married to Senna's daughter. He's got a lot of shit saying, oh yeah, let's kill this 20-year-old. And he narrowly escapes it he has enough friends within Sulla's inner circle to be like no he's just just leave him alone okay just a little boy because the Romans Romans love their whole like pithy call forwards he's going to be like they say something along the lines he is going to be Sulla five five times over (laughs) well guess what happens to the Republic yeah. Kind of fucking dies. So, yeah, it's a very interesting story. I think it is something that would be would make for very great television, even though most of these people are fucking awful. But, like, hey. We love drama. We love drama. And this is Roman drama. Keeping up with the Romans. <laughs> yes. The real housewives of the fall of the Roman Republic. I managed to squeeze 50 years of history into just, like... And who knows how many hours of podcasts... <laughs> Oh, yeah, Mike Duncan spent a lot of time on that one. <laughs> hmm Also, uh, fun fact, the Founding Fathers of the United States, being a bunch of classics nerds, they were kind of paying attention to this part. I think they should have paid attention a bit more to it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Also, you know, how the whole, 
the U.S. likes to compare themselves to Rome. No, you're not the Empire at the end. You're not. You're not. You're you. You need to pay attention to the whole Gracchi brothers into Marius and Sulla. It's not a one one for one comparison. History does not repeat. It sure as fuck rhymes. Mm-hmm. That was Lindsay's uh, education hour. I didn't even get into like what the casting would be. I'm just saying, like, hey, fuck the whole. Everybody's white. Yeah. Yeah. Like, my one thing with the Gracket brothers is that they should look like brothers, but, like, I don't really care otherwise. Exactly. Yeah. Are you at the end of your Rome? Yeah. Yeah. In that case, oceans rise, empires fall, and it's time for a friendship promo. Greetings. I am the modestly handsome obituary writer of this fetching town of Crestfall, Idaho, and this is Death by Dying. Death is exhausting. And so, after a long day of funeral attending, I had retired to my apartment to get some shut-eye. I loosened my Versace tie and changed into my Egyptian silk pajamas. Are you the detective in town? No, I'm the obituary writer. Really? Someone said you solve murder cases. Murder? I'm Charlotte, by the way. Forgive me, but I haven't gotten past the murder part. Charlotte? The friend I now have is staying in the apartment above her Aunt Lillian's bookshop. She was my aunt. She was all I had growing up. I need to know why she's gone. Murder is the spice of life. I knew just who I had to see. The Angel of Death. We have become friends over the years. Careful. Death is ever-present. Her pet, the button-eyed raven, moaned inconsolably as usual. Your friends are abandoning you, one by one. You write about death, O.W., but how much do you know about what it feels like to lose someone? The shadow in the dark woods is making its way into Crestfall. Listen to Death by Dying on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher. All right, Lindsay, where can you be found in the in the forum? <laughs> I can be found on the Twitter forum at lindsaym476. That's Lindsay spelled with an A, and you can get to all my other social media bullshits from there. Tanner, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at SparkyUpstart and on Instagram at SparkyYoungUpstart. You can also find this very podcast on Twitter at N-I-I-R-Y-F-Pod. Those are the letters for not if I reboot you first, but they're actually pronounced S-P-Q-R. Did I make that same joke when we did the Rome episode? Uh, no, you said something in Latin. Okay, great. I don't know how to speak Latin. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can also email us at not if I reboot you first at gmail.com where you can send us your comments, critiques, criticisms, and your... Send us your enemies. We'll throw them in the Tiber. Yep. Everybody goes into the Tiber. <laughs> <laughs> Um, that email is also where you can send us a friendship promo, be it an audio clip or a proof for us to read. Either way, we'll put in a free ad for your podcast or YouTube or even your DeviantArt. Not if I reboot you first as a member of the Corner Podcast Network and you can talk more about this show or others on the network via our Corner Podcast Discord. As always, our cover art is by Alex Fierce and her work can be found on ptcatw.com and our theme music is done by Sean Clay, whose contact info is available upon request. This podcast is recorded on Treaty 4 territory, the traditional lands of the Cree, Sotol, and Assiniboine and homeland of the Métis. So, Lindsay, would you like a hint for next week, which is my people's choice, which is already publicly accessible? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Well, don't worry. 
There won't be another full moon for months. This about werewolves? It is about werewolves. Okay. It's about she-wolves, even. Ooh. Uh, so we'll head over there next week, but not if we reboot you first. Bye.